The other thing I want to say before I jump into the book of Joel is, is I want to begin where we're going to end today. Um, let, me, let me read this to you, and it's, it's familiar, but it has to do with the Lord's Supper. It has to do with communion. It says this in 1 Corinthians 11. Just, just listen. I'll read it to you. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. There's a lot there that I'm not going to unpack apart from this. Let me encourage you this morning as we walk through the book of Joel together to be reminded of the fact that when we come to our observance of communion together this morning, we take communion together, when we stop at the end of our service and, and we receive the elements and, and we share in them together, that one of the, the most important things that we do is we take time to examine our hearts. We, we pray as the psalmist pray, try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. And we're quick to repent. That's the story of Joel. That's the story of Joel. So hoping that you have found Joel chapter 1 by now, <laughs> which you never can tell. Let me, let, me, let me read the first three verses and kind of set the stage. Joel, who, who, by the way, we know very little about this fellow Joel. We actually don't even know exactly when he wrote this book. I mean, there's, there's some great uh, opinions and, and guests out there from some of those the academic geniuses, but we really can't narrow it down specifically. He says this in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. So I'll stop there. So, so that's how Joel begins his prophecy. He says, listen, have you ever seen anything like this? So, so think about your own personal experience, whether it be uh, weather-related, whether it be just one of those crazy stories that there is absolutely no way you could tell anybody and have them actually believe you. Um, just one of those things, and, and Joel says, listen, this event was so monumental, it was so big, it was so huge, it was so memorable, it's so important that I want you to tell your children and have your children tell their children, because I want this to go a few generations so that we don't lose sight of what it is that happened. So... What happened? I apologize in advance for any of you who might be a little squeamish. Um, this is what happened. Locusts. Lots and lots of locusts. This is awesome. Looks like a cloud, doesn't it? It ain't a cloud. This video was taken in 2013 in Madagascar. See, what, what Joel is talking about is there was a swarm of locusts. We can imagine what kind of destruction they do, right? I mean, in fact, locusts are called the incarnation of hunger. 
Because locusts can eat more than their own body weight in vegetation every day. Now, it doesn't mean a whole lot when you got one little bug. But when you have, let's see, 12.5 trillion bugs, which was the estimation of this swarm here, they can do a little harm, can't they? <laughs> Locusts everywhere. And Joel says, listen, we had an event happen that you're not going to understand. And, and, and I think we need to understand how bad locusts are. I mean, we're, we're more of an agricultural community, so we, we get it. I mean, if you have a swarm like that that comes in and starts eating all of the vegetation, you know the damage that's going to occur, right? I mean, not only are, is it going to just leave the land desolate. I mean, that's, this is the, um, where they get um, scorched earth policy in military, is actually taken from the, the activity of locusts throughout history. When you look behind a swarm of locusts, in front of them there's just vegetation as far as you can see. Behind them there is nothing but destruction, which is financial ruin, cultural ruin. It's just a disaster for an agricultural society. Um, locusts were not abnormal to the Hebrews. The Hebrews, in fact, had eight different words to describe locusts in their language. So they're very familiar with locusts. And so when Joel says, listen, this was such a huge event, such a big deal, I want you to make sure you never forget it. I want you to tell your children, your children's children, your children's children, make sure they all know what just happened. And so let's read a little bit about what happened starting in verse 4 of Joel chapter 1. He says this, What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Okay, I think you kind of get the idea there. There's a lot of discussions like, so are those four different kinds of locusts? Or is that the, the different stages of a locust's existence and life? Reality is this, there ain't nothing left. One wave of locusts come, then a second wave of locusts come, then a third wave of locusts come, and then a fourth wave. And, and so by the time that fourth wave comes through, there is nothing left. All the vegetation's gone. It says in verse 5, wake up, drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. It's interesting, Joel says, okay, listen, those of you who like to imbibe a little, you drunks, you wine drinkers, I want you to take a moment and realize there's no more wine. The locusts have got everything. Verse 6, a nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has teeth like a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and it's ruined my fig trees. It's stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Picture it. Total devastation. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Mourn, be so emotional that it's similar to a, a young lady who is engaged to be married and she's made it through her rehearsal and her rehearsal dinner and said goodnight to her loved one. And the next morning she wakes up the day of her wedding to find out the one she was to marry is gone. Weep like that. Verse 9, grain offerings, drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning. Those who minister before the Lord, he's saying, even the priests are mourning because there's no more offerings. There's no more opportunity to bring anything into the house of God. It's all gone. 
The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Oh, farmers, now there's no question the farmers are going to be mourning, right? Verse 11, to spare you farmers, wail you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field, they're drawn up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for that day. For the day of the Lord is near. And it will come like destruction from the Almighty. And hasn't the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down for the grain has dried up. And how the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. That's how much destruction is here. Even the cattle and the flocks and the sheep, they've they've got nothing left to eat. So even it affects... The flocks. Hmm. So what, what is it that happened? There was this unthinkable swarm of locusts that came through and ate everything up. And the destruction was felt in every area of the culture and community. Why did it happen? Why did it happen? Look at, look at Joel chapter 2 verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, and it's close at hand. So, so what we are told is that this locust swarm serves at the very least as a picture for the prophet Joel to use as he preaches and teaches to the children of Israel, calling on them and saying, listen, you need to remember, you just see the destruction that the locust brought. Okay, what that should call to, remember, to, to your memory is there is a judgment that is coming soon, and it's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, that phrase is used five times in the book of Joel. It is not the most encouraging phrase that is ever used. The idea of the day of the Lord is this. When prophets use that phrase, it's, it's to speak of a dramatic movement of God to judge our sin and to save the sinner. The day of the Lord is this dramatic mo- movement of God to judge our sin and to rescue the sinner. So, so, so when you think about the day of the Lord and how it's used throughout the Old Testament, you, you see it used in a number of different places. It's referred to as occurring back in Genesis chapter 6 even. Now obviously that's not the final culmination of the day of the Lord. It was just one of those pictures that helped the prophets point forward to the future day of the Lord. And that initial picture was this. God looks down from heaven and he sees mankind ravished in its sin and he says, I'm not arguing with them forever. My spirit will not contend with men and their sinfulness forever. And were it not for Noah, none of us would be here. For God brought judgment in Genesis 6. There's a day that is going to come when God will walk out from behind the curtain of human history and take his rightful place in center stage. The locust plague is pretty bad. 
but it pales in comparison to the day of the Lord. Let me read Joel chapter 2, the first 11 verses. He says this, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. And here, here's a description. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. And at the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. And these, they charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They don't jostle each other. They, mat, they march straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking their ranks. They rush upon the city. They run upon the, law, the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? The day of the Lord is being preached by the prophet Joel. So that you and I will take sin seriously. It's interesting, as you read through most of the prophets, particularly the minor prophets, there are some specific sins that are named among the people, and they're called back to repentance from those specific sins. But here in Joel, there is no specific sin. But it doesn't take but for a a humble person to stop for a moment and examine their hearts to be able to identify the sin that remains within. Um, I think it's um, probably more true now than it has been thanks to the internet um, that we tend to take the sin of other people, magnify it, and then look at our own sin and minimize it. We, we tend to play the game where we look at others and say, well, at least my sin isn't that bad. But in fact, sin is sin. And God hates all sin. Big, little, young, old. Doesn't matter who's committing it. God hates sin. And at times you can find throughout Scripture that God's people have been dull to sin. They they found themselves participating in religious activity but never repent of their own sin. They never take time to consider their own sin. They never see it as sin. They never call it sin. It's like a politician apologizing. I I don't mean to bring politics in, but I think we can understand. We've seen this enough in American history. I'm sorry it was a lapse in judgment. I'm sorry if someone was offended by that. 
Sorry, I made a mistake. And yet failing to call it what it is. Sin. But that's us. There's no disrespect to politicians. That's just a picture, a microcosm of you. No disrespect to you because it's me. We need to take care to ensure that that's not where we are. And, 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 and just to run through, maybe, maybe drive some of this home. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit will use some of this and maybe he won't. Maybe this is just me preaching to myself. It always is, so just in case you're wondering. I wonder if we've replaced the satisfaction that should be found in God alone with the satisfaction of having other people like us. I wonder if we've become so dull to sin that, that we view backbiting, harsh words, and gossip as personality. Are we so broken that we simply say, well, you know, boys will be boys when you stumble onto somebody's internet browsing history and find pornographic images? Are we so numb to sin that we view drunkenness just as a way to unwind after work or on the weekends? Are we quick to admit that we made a mistake when we exploded someone? But we're not so quick to call it what it is, sin, in the midst of my anger. Are we so sin-sick that we giggle at the soft core pornography that's on television? Are we so self-righteous and arrogant that any of those things caused us to think about someone else, judging them instead of being broken by our own sin? So do you take your sin seriously? or just the sin of others. See, God, God isn't one who's simply going to overlook sin. He can't, can he? He, he? he can't. I mean, the moment he overlooks one sin, he ceases to be holy and righteous and just, and, and his character would be forever changed. He's a God who's going to judge sin, and, and on that great and awesome and terrible day of the Lord, it's going to be a complete judgment. And the message of Joel is, is just that. God is holy. He hates sin, big, small. And he's going to judge it. And so when we stumble across disasters, whether they be personal disasters or even community-wide disasters, it, it should remind us that there is a day coming. It should remind us that, that as we view our own hearts and examine our own hearts, that our sin crushes the heart of God. Now what? Chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, because he is, he is gracious, he is compassionate, he is slow to anger, he's abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. 
I mean, who, who knows? He may turn, he may relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. So what, what now? The, the, the answer is simple. Even now, right now, come home. Do you, do you hear the voice of the prodigal father? It says that when the young man returned after wasting his father's inheritance on riotous living, and, and he's returning, and you do get the picture in your head of the young man coming home, and he's rehearsing in his mind the script he's going to use. You know, I, I'll just be a servant of yours. I'm, I'm sinned against you in, in heaven, and I want to be a servant of yours. Okay, maybe I should do that first. Let me try that again, okay? And, and you get that picture of him rehearsing over and over in his head the, 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 the mentality of, I need to offer something to my, my father. I need to offer something to him in order for him to accept me. I need to, okay, let me, let me maybe I put that first in this one, but I know I need to be humble, so let's, let's practice humble. Okay, how should I be humble? And you get that idea, and he's walking, and it says he doesn't even make it to the yard because daddy's on the porch looking a long way off, and he sees his son approaching, and, and, and even before he can tell it's really him, you had to imagine that the, the feeling in the prodigal father is, maybe that's my boy. Maybe he's home. Is this him? I think it's him. That's got to be him. Is that, why is his head down? Why is it, I can't tell. Is he Okay. Why is his head down? And then he runs to his little boy. And it says he falls on his neck with hugs and kisses. And the son tries to rehearse his, his script. Um, um, father, I, and he's like, no, stop! My son is home. Kill the fatted calf. Get the best robe. Put the ring on him. Let's party. Don't you hear that in the voice of God in verse 12? Right now. Return to me with all of your heart. You can't return if you were never there. So let me lay that out there. The day of the Lord is a terrifying and terrible uh, day. The day when God will come and he will crush sin. He will destroy sin. Not because he's afraid of sin. Not because sin weakens him like kryptonite. It's because he is so holy it cannot dwell in his presence without him judging it. So God will return and on that day he will judge sin. And friend, if you are there in his presence on that day and hope to stand on your own merits, you are in trouble. Because all of us are sinners. All of us have come short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, the the price or the cost of that sin is your very own life as you come into contact with a holy God. So if you hope to stand before God on your own merit, on your own work, on your own religiosity, then I encourage you today to instead lean on the finished work of Jesus Christ. For it's only in him we can be declared righteous. For it's only in him that we can stand on that terrible day. For those of you that have known Jesus and do know him, the heartbeat of God is take your sin seriously and return to me with all of your heart. He says, return to God, return to God, not, not to religious activity, not to attending church more often, not to spiritual disciplines, not to reading your Bible more, not to religious exercises, not to giving more. It doesn't say any of that. He says, return to me. 
Get rid of your sin. Repent of your sin. Not, not because, oh, everything in me screams to use a parenting illustration right here, but it would probably be inappropriate, so I won't. But I think I just did, so apologize, kids. Um, you don't repent because you got caught. You don't repent because the consequences are, are is you feel that they're too great for you to handle. You repent and you grieve and you weep over your sin because your sin keeps you from God. It keeps you from the beauty and the joy and the delight and the wonder and the satisfaction that can only be found in God. So return to God with all of your heart. There's a weightiness to repentance. Um, he, he talks about with fasting and weeping and mourning. The picture there is an understanding of your brokenness, your sin, and the fact that it, 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 it breaks the heart of God, and so it brings you grief and mourning even in your heart. So there is a, a weightiness to repentance, but there's also a, a, a significant, I don't know another way to say this, a messiness to your repentance. It's not a, a clear-cut, clean way to do things. I mean, so, so what he says here in verse 13 is, is really important for us. Rend your heart not your garments. The, the cultural norm of the day was in times of mourning and grief, whether it be in, in mourning over the death of someone or, or, or it even be the grief over your own sin, the, the, the cultural norm was for you to take your clothing and just tear it to show how broken you were and how torn apart you were by, by emotion in the, in the moment. And what, what, what Joel says is, listen, don't worry about the externals. Don't come with the externals. This isn't supposed to be some outward religious moment. It's not supposed to be a time where you tear your clothes to demonstrate your brokenness. Tear your heart. Outpour or pour out your heart. I mean, don't come to him with a fail-proof plan of how you're never going to do it again because that just proves you're not repentant. It proves you still think you got it. See, God, I'm never going to fall again because I put an internet filter. Well, who are you trusting in then? It's not God. I'm not saying don't do those things. But I'm saying your repentance is much more a matter of your heart than it is a matter of your externals. And it's, it's coming with this, this pure integrity and honesty as you talk to God and confess how broken you are over your sin. <laughs> Seems crazy, doesn't it? The God of all power, strength, wisdom, and might. The God who is going to come and judge all sin. The God who I stand before him guilty. And you're telling me that I'm simply supposed to fall down before him and say, I am sorry, I've sinned against you and you only. Why in the world would he forgive me? Why, why, why would that possibly happen? Because he, he is a just judge who will judge sin in his holiness. So, so if that's his character, how do I experience forgiveness? Because you can't limit God's character just to his, his judge, justice and his jealousy and his wrath because God is far deeper and greater than that. Because wrapped up in God 
are the other attributes that are even mentioned here in verse 13. He is gracious. Our God is gracious. And we, we, we all have definitions of grace, but, but maybe if we pictured it as a superior reaching down to an inferior in order to serve them. That, that can be in stature, that can be in position, it doesn't matter. But, 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 so the picture that comes to mind is it's an old story that I had read, I mean this is years ago. Um, Ronald Reagan, President Reagan was, was with his uh, uh, secret service folks and walking to a car or something and there was crowds of people and there was a young boy uh, who had bent over and he, both his shoes were untied and Ronald Reagan stopped and tied the boy's shoes. There's a picture for you, huh? The leader of the free world, tying this little man's shoes. Think you ever untied him? eBay! No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that's a picture of grace. He's very gracious. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He loves you deeply. That word for compassionate and, and mercy is, is the same root word that's used for a mom who's nursing a newborn. That baby can't take care of itself, and so mom will gladly give of herself to care for him or her. It's, it's the same word that's used as a father is compassionate with his children. It's like a, a dad who is, is carefully and lovingly teaching their young man how to change a windshield wiper blade. Can I tell you something? It's exponentially faster to do it yourself. But there is something that happens in that moment when daddy's trying to explain how the clip works. And, oh, no, 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 don't use that screwdriver. You're going to cut yourself. There's a compassion that oozes from him. Our God is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. The, if you were to literally translate that from the, the Hebrew, it makes absolutely no sense. It takes a lot of cultural understanding and digging in to even figure it out. The literal translation of that is to be long of nose. That means nothing to me right out of the gate, right? Pinocchio comes to mind, but I don't think that's what he's going for. The idea is the breath. thought that as God views our sinfulness and stupidity in our sinfulness, long of nose, it's the inhale, but it doesn't end just in long of nose and slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. I love this picture of, of steadfast love. It's this covenant that God has made with you and he's going to stick to his word because he is God and he never breaks his word. God is faithful. God is true. God will always keep his word and he has made a promise and he will see through to it on his end. So steadfast love is a beautiful part of what it says here, but God is abounding in steadfast love. Abounding. It's, it's the picture of you have three kids at home and it's time for snacks. And you, you go to your cupboard, you pull it out, and those, I can't stand these things. Goldfish. 
And part of it's because if, as a parent, when your kids are munching on goldfish, they have a tendency to like, and throw it back in the box. And you end up as dad like, I'm going to have a few. Blah! So it ruins it forever. You, you go and you're, you're like, okay, who wants goldfish? And everybody's like, yeah, I do, I do, I want goldfish. You're like, yes, so everybody have a seat. And they're sitting and they're like, yay, goldfish, woohoo, goldfish. And you pull out the goldfish box and it's like, and you put it on the table and you rip it open and there's five goldfish. And so with three kids and five goldfish, the dad way of doing it is, okay, one for you, one for you, one for you. I'll just eat the other two, keep it even. I mean, we're good, it's fair, right? And I think sometimes when we view God and his steadfast love, we imagine it like that. He's got this much love and this many people. And so you get a little here and a little there and a little there. I mean, he's got to be very careful not to overexert or overspend because if he does, he's going to run out. But our God is abounding in steadfast love. Our God goes to the cupboard for the goldfish and puts the box and goes, and there's goldfish everywhere. And you can eat yourself stupid with goldfish and never stop. You probably should. I'm sure that's not good for you. That's our God. And he's gracious compassionate and merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he responds to our brokenness. He relents from sending calamity. The word relents closes the loop on slow to anger. Relents isn't a phew, I don't have to hit him. It's a Okay. God can now comfort and care for his own. He can console them. He can renew them. He can refresh them. He can restore them. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord our God. So, so some people will read that and be like, who knows? I want to know. Who knows? Like, no, 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 no. The approach of repentance is one of humility. It's one when you go to God and like, I know what I deserve because I am a sinner and I fall on my face before you and I ask you for your forgiveness. And the, 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 the mode of repentance, the spirit of repentance in such humility is, you shouldn't forgive me because I know. Maybe he will. Would you, you would forgive me? And the picture of Joel continues. Look at chapter 2, verse 31 and 32. God acts on behalf of his own. He's talking about the great and terrible day of the Lord in verse 31. And he says, The sun, it will be turned into darkness. The moon will be turned to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Chapter 3, I'll start in verse 14. There's multitudes. Multitudes of people in the, the valley of decision because the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. All these people have gathered together and again he repeats, the sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will no longer shine. 
The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem, and the earth and the heavens will tremble. So let's stop there for a moment. So that great day of the Lord, God, God roars from the mountain, and the whole world starts to shake because it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So he roars, and everybody, no, oh, what's going to happen? Even, even creation itself begins to shudder. Continue. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. His judgment will come, but for those who cling to him, they'll find relief and shelter from the day of the Lord. So this morning as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper together, as we prepare to receive communion with one another, may I encourage you this morning to return, but don't return to a system or a way of life, but return to an intensely personal God who knows you, who loves you, and who sent his son to die for you. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, there will be some music, instrumental music will be playing. During that instrumental music, I'm going to encourage you to, to leave your seats and come and receive the elements, the bread and the cracker. And, and just so you know, the bread and the cracker, there's, there's nothing magical in them. They are simply that. It's, or sorry, the bread and the, the juice, the cracker and the juice. It's, it's a cracker, it's juice, so there's nothing magic about it. I don't, I don't pray a special prayer that turns it into something else. It's not. It's a picture. It's a moment for us to stop and reflect on what it is that Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. It's to remind us that he willingly laid down his life so that you might have life. And, and, and so in a moment you'll come and you'll receive the elements and we're going to encourage you to go back to your seats. And as, as folks are, are making their way through the line and as the instrumental music is playing, may I encourage you with the words of Paul again, let each one examine his own heart before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. May each one of us in this room take sin seriously. May each one of us return home. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the powerful words of Joel for the reminder that it is that you are good and holy. Thank you that, that in Christ we can stand before you forgiven and clean. And Lord, as we, we move on in our service and we prepare our hearts to receive the reminder of what it is you did for us. God, I ask, as the psalmist did, that your Holy Spirit would search us, know us, and, and put his bittersweet finger on our soul if there's a wicked way in us that we need to repent from. May we take sin seriously. I thank you that because of Christ, we can stand before you clean, forgiven, and ransomed. Renew that 
beautiful reminder in our hearts. Even now. Amen.